Everyone said, you have to interview Dr. Michelle Perugini. And when you listen to this week's episode of Discipline, you'll hear why. Dr. Michelle Perugini is not just a brilliant, and I mean brilliant mind, she's a brilliant person, a sharp academic, generous giver of time, and dedicated and focused businesswoman. With Presagen and the Life Whisperer, Michelle is changing, sorry, making lives. With artificial intelligence, AI, the Life Whisperer is making IVF up to 30% more successful. What could be better in business than giving the gift of life? Some people make me wonder where this incredible drive comes from. Dr. Perugini says, in order for scientific advances to be useful to patients, you need to build up a successful commercial business and you need to have the right intention about why you are doing it. We just care deeply about patient outcomes. I needn't say any more. Enjoy our discussion. Dr. Michelle Perugini, co-founder and CEO at Life Whisperer and Presagen, welcome to Discipline. Thanks for having me, Tony. Before becoming a doctor and moving into the world of AI, let's start back in your formative years. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a medical doctor, so a GP is what I wanted to be. And I always had a really keen interest in biology and understanding how the body works. So anything to do with the body and, um, yeah, the inner workings of biology and medical treatments. So you started off on that path in health and medical research and that was where you were going? I did. I thought I wanted to be in traditional medicine, but um, I actually didn't get the grades to get into medicine when I finished school. And so I chose to do medical and pharmaceutical biotechnology and I got really interested in the research space just by virtue of me having to do a a secondary course. sounds more complex than medicine. Yeah, (laughs) it's quite interesting. I mean, the the grades to get into these courses are largely based on the popularity of the degree, not the difficulty of the degree. (laughs) So that's that's the challenge. But I found this... I developed this real passion for the scientific nature of medicine and particularly for genetics. Yep. Um, And was there anything about the academic process that you enjoyed as well? I did. I really loved the exploratory nature of academia. So I loved being able to come up with a hypothesis and then design the experiments to test that hypothesis and then create new knowledge. I think that was really where my passion kind of was driven in that space. So if you're in that space and you do that for many years, how do you break out of that into the private sector? And more importantly, why did you break out? I didn't break out intentionally. So what happened is at the same time while I was tracking through my medical research career, my husband, Don, who is now one of my co-founders, had been working at Department of Defence and he did his PhD same time as I did my PhD, but he did his PhD in AI and he was using artificial intelligence for a whole range of military applications. And we used to have these conversations around the technology and what it was kind of capable of and I developed a real passion for the technology side. And then around 10 years after we'd both been in our respective careers, he started to think about how he could actually commercially apply the the science and the new knowledge that he was creating in the space for the military. And he didn't like the fact that it was only for the defence. He saw much broader applicability and practical applications for it. 
And so in 2007, he um, made the decision or we sort of collectively made the decision that um, he would start a company in the AI space. And he approached a professor at the University of Adelaide, Professor Mike Young, who was a water economist, right. environmental economist in the water industry. And he had some really complex problems and Don had an early conversation with him and said, I can solve that um, with AI. AI. Yeah. And he did and he solved a problem, I think, within you know a couple of weeks that they'd been working on for months and months wow. with a whole team of people. Yeah. And so that's kind of what spawned our first company, ISD Analytics. Okay. And then for a long time, so for the first um, five or so years of that company, I maintained my medical research career as well as taking a role in helping grow that business. And I did that because I was very passionate about what I was doing and I really enjoyed the medical research, but I also enjoyed the commercialisation and building a company and the technology. And it was kind of a learning experience for me to gain more knowledge about how the technology could apply yeah i'm thinking as well like you know a lot of uh, conversations between uh, spouses at the dinner table are uh, (laughs) you know the garbage needs to be taken out tonight and you're looking at algorithms for solving uh, incredible problems um has that worked well as a collaborative partnership It has worked really well, and I'm not sure why. People ask me this all the time. I think people externally think it's really strange and can't imagine how that could possibly work. But for me, it's all I've ever known because since I knew him, we were kind of both doing really intense PhD, kind of very intense research at the same time, so we are experiencing the same things and then just seemed like a really natural fit for us. And I think we've also got extremely different skill sets. Yeah, okay, that's great. So there's not really – there's a lot of overlap and commonality, but we're actually very good in different ways. So I think that just works really well for us. Having complementary skills with two founders is ideal. Yeah. With your time now, so you've touched on a few things that you've done, but I've seen you're an advisor – mentor, board member of no less than 10 organisations. Um, how do you manage it, first of all, and why why is it so important for you to share the love? Um, I'm, an, I'm an advocate for a lot of different things. I just really enjoy being part of the growth of both the industry and the ecosystem in which I operate, as well as Australia more generally alike, helping people who have helped me. Um, and you know, in business, if you, you don't know everything. So when we started our first company, we relied heavily on people helping us and giving us advice and we would not have been able to be successful if, if it weren't for that advice that we were given. And so I kind of feel like it's my duty to give that that. back and I just really enjoy it. I just really enjoy it, but it is a case of needing to manage that time because I've got my own company to grow and so I'm quite selective now with you know with who I can help and it needs to be aligned I think the other thing that people don't realize is when I'm advising these companies or on boards I'm learning too right they're experiencing completely different things to what I've experienced and quite often they're things that I will experience in the future and it's actually a really good learning experience yeah yeah so i get a lot of knowledge from it as well that's a good way to look at it and again you touched on something i was going to ask so you know is there a risk that you spread yourself too thinly with your time when you've got 
your own two organisations that you're CEO of? Yes, time is always a premium. But again, I think if you concentrate on doing things that jointly benefit the business that you're growing, as well as, you know, at the same time helping others, I think there's, you know, it's it's a time management problem. So you just need to make sure that it's not cannibalising the time that you need to spend growing your own company. I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, So let's get into the companies. Tell me about Presogen and Life Whisperer. How did they come about? Yeah, so the reason they appear like separate companies is because they kind of started out that way. So Don and I, when we um, we actually sold our first company, ISD, to Ernst & Young in 2015, and we thought we really wanted to do something in the health space, yep. health and AI. That was kind of a cr- direct crossover of our passion areas, and that's what I've always wanted to do. And around about the time, so we had this vision about creating a platform that could um, create AI products, scalable AI products for the medical sector. But around that time that we were conceiving that platform idea, I met with Jonathan Hall and actually I was mentoring Jonathan through a commercialisation program at the university. So this is case in point why those types of mentoring roles are actually really important. So I was mentoring him. He had this concept around non-invasive embryo assessment during the IVF process. And I'd done a stem cell biology and genetics degree. Don had obviously the AI background. And I'm like, wow, I think this is a problem that can be solved by AI. And also I understand embryology because I've been a stem cell biologist. Really interesting mix of skills. And I sort of said to him on our second meeting, are you serious about doing this and commercialising this idea? And he said, yes, I am, but I've got no commercial experience. And that's what he was in this program to look for. And I said to him, I think we should just do it. And we literally made a decision very quickly after the next couple of meetings that we would form a company together and explore the idea and do our initial testing. And I said, if you're committed to this idea and you're willing to go without a wage we'll fund it in the early um, stages and that's what we did and we proved the concept and it's what it is today so big idea having ai that's applicable into all, a whole range of medical applications mm-hmm. presumably and then your first problem to solve embryo viability assessment i said before i don't know anything medically yep. so tell me how does how does this all work what does it mean yeah so basically during the ivf process you have eggs taken from the female if you can't have children naturally and then they fertilize them in a culture dish so yep. outside of the body with sperm and then those um, fertilized eggs become embryos which are kind of um, multicellular little beings at that point And um, at the day five point in culture, an embryologist needs to look down a microscope and pick one of those embryos to transfer back to the female patient. Yep. And that one embryo that they pick, you are hoping creates a baby. And what's, if if I may ask, what's the embryologist, what's their expertise to pick it's, um, it's an incredibly subjective area. Right. So they don't have much of a basis on which to select them. Good embryos and bad embryos look very similar. Right. And they have a very rudimentary um, scaling method. Yes. Grading method that they use to 
look at different parts of the embryo. But, of course, they're limited to what the eye can see down the microscope. Yep, yep. And humans aren't good at considering tens of thousands of historical embryos that they've seen and remembering whether they resulted in a pregnancy or not. Right. That's what a computer's good at. Yes. So computers' AI is good at training on the images, sort of in a similar way to what a person does. Yes. But having a very big data set of images to train on where it knows yeah. whether a pregnancy resulted or not. And then it's a simple classification problem. Yeah, it right. just learns features that are consistent with positive pregnancy outcomes or negative pregnancy outcomes. Yes. And then it becomes quite accurate at being able to pick the and good presumably ones. Presumably you've got a feedback uh, at stages of the process, different um, data sets or how things are going so it can learn and adjust its thinking to what it's It looking. doesn't continuously learn because you're not allowed to do that in the medical space or it's quite difficult to because if you imagine an AI can kind of get its training can get off track pretty easily okay. if it's fed yeah. data that is inconsistent to what it's been trained on. So what we do or the way it's done in um, healthcare generally is that you have different versions of the algorithm. So you'll do your initial training on a very large data set. You then blind test that data set yes. on a whole bunch of additional data that has not been used in the training process. So that shows you how accurate it is in real life. And then as you go about having that product in use, it will collect more data. And then every year, for example, you might do a retrain yeah, okay. and then update the algorithm, yeah. which hopefully will be more accurate on the basis of that additional data. I'm going to go off track here now yeah. because that's fascinating. <laughs> so, I mean, what's to stop the um, parameters that you create for this AI engine to, you know, what's to stop people uh, maliciously saying, well, not only do we want to pick embryos that are viable, we want to pick embryos that are going to be six-foot, blue-eyed, yeah. white, uh, you know, blonde-haired people. Yeah. I mean, is, there, is this opening up possibilities that we're just not ready for? It's very difficult to do that with an okay. AI. Um, so people think AI is quite intelligent. I'm thinking cybernetics yeah. here, you know, Terminator. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, you don't want to say nothing, you know, something's impossible in the future, but deep learning is really not that smart. It's, yeah. it's only learning what you feed it, Yeah. right? It's learning what you tell it to learn yes. and nothing more. Yeah. So it's not capable of doing those things. Okay. Um, but it is very capable of, of analysing extremely large data sets and yes. drawing patterns and yeah. connections between those data. That's what it's good at. Yes. And so for a classification problem like embryo viability, it's the perfect approach. It's just a really robust approach that can very accurately um, assess whether an embryo is likely to lead to a pregnancy or not and with what level of confidence. And I saw um, a couple of years ago when I was um, in Israel, I can't remember the name of the company, I think it's Zebra, and it was doing something, it seems along those lines, with pathology. Yep. So taking a blood sample, uh, having a high-definition microscope, look at the sample, send the, um, the, the image off to the cloud and it would compare against hundreds of thousands of other images and... I think it was able to say whether what they were looking for was there or yep. was going to develop, but moreover, hey, here's something here's something that we found that you weren't looking for. Uh -huh. um, yep. And this type of technology then has incredible benefits for um, developing countries and people without the same level of um, you know labs that we have fortunately Correct. in Australia. Um, so again, I'm interested in 
the applications that you see for the future. Um, you've got the Life Whisperer, which is yeah. focused on the, the embryos. What else is possible? Yeah, so if I tell you a little bit about Prestigen, because um, Prestigen's got a very much broader vision um, for AI and healthcare, and we've actually got some really cool enabling technologies that allow us to build these scalable products. So one of the challenges using AI in healthcare is that um, there's a lot of data, but it sits with individual clinics, yep. right? And it sits in all sorts of places in the world. And in order to build an, a scalable AI medical product, you need to build that AI on a very diverse yeah. clinical and demographic data set. But there's an extra layer of complication in the healthcare sector in that you can't actually share healthcare data across right. country borders because privacy. there's privacy yeah. restrictions. So how then do you build a scalable AI that you can put out to the world? Very difficult. Data? No, de-identification is not enough. Really? It's not enough. So this is this is the challenge. Um, it's not enough from multiple perspectives. So there's ways that you can re-identify, de-identify data, particularly with these new AI-type technologies. So there's still a big risk there. There's also a cybersecurity risk. Um, and the third thing is the perceived risk from the clinical providers. They don't want their data being moved because then it, it feels like they've lost control of that data and where it goes and what it's utilised for. Isn't there a greater good argument here? Yeah, it's, um, it's very challenging. But what we've um, created because of that problem is some really cool technologies that allow us to now send our AI out to instead of, so what you would normally do with building an AI and training an AI is you would collect all the data that you need, put it all into one big bucket, and then you do your AI training. Yep can't do that in the healthcare space. So what we've developed is an algorithm that allows our AI to go out to a local data set yes. in one location, learn from that data, and then iteratively move to the next one and just share the knowledge and gain additional knowledge as it kind of moves around without ever moving the data itself. Yes. And that's pretty amazing. That's going to be revolutionary in the healthcare sector. Yeah. So we're really excited about that. But what it also means is that we have the capability to create scalable medical products that we can then deploy out to anywhere in the world so we're seeing the fruits of that labor now with life whisperer yes we've got um we've got the trials ongoing in europe we've got clinics trying it in um, india malaysia thailand um, we've done our clinical studies in across four countries including the us new zealand um, australia and malaysia amazing and the technology is transferable yeah. it's generalizable to all of those areas Fantastic. so in terms of other so that's really cool that's kind of a yeah. base level capability but as a company we have a focus on women's health applications yes. because it's a very underserved part of the market yep and it's also very nicely complementary to our first product in the fertility sector. So we've got another, we've got multiple additional products that yes. we're going to um, develop and are developing in the fertility sector around non-invasive genetic assessment of embryos, um, egg viability assessment, sperm yes. viability assessment. So they're directly related to what I call our knowledge base now yep. and their logical extensions. And then we're, of course, interested in other areas like ovarian cancer and endometriosis and wow. breast cancer and that yeah. whole kind of package of women's health space. So that's our orientation as a company. And will you set up each of those um, focused companies as separate companies like you have with the Life Whisperer or will you be able to license that 
as almost a plug and play engine for other research companies to, to use the, the engine. The engine is up at Prestigen yes. and it licenses its engine to the different sector focused um, yep. application companies, if you like. So Life Whisper is the fertility brand. So any new products yep. that are in the fertility sector will um, will go under the banner of Life Whisperer and then there will be others for um, for the other areas. And the reason we do that is because we think it's really important if you're if you're putting out a product in the fertility sector, these fertility clinics want to deal with a fertility company. They don't necessarily care about the broader um, you know focuses of the technology. Yeah, yeah, they just yeah. want that really um, carefully constructed focus on their industry sector and so we think it's important to have different teams that service that industry but of course it's all leveraging the technology of the parent company it makes sense from a business model perspective as well to have multiple companies yourself under one roof that you have to fund and and build up from scratch to get uh, the product set out there correct Uh, is I'd imagine quite expensive, but if mm-hmm. you can license it out to other people who've got their own funding for their own area, that'll no doubt help uh, bring in lots of revenue quickly. Yeah, exactly. And you're also saying, so you're saying that this technology with Life Whisperer can be applicable to traditional pregnancies uh, down the track? Um, not really. So okay. at the moment, it's really only looking at in vitro cultured embryos. Okay. So where, however, there's a lot of applications in pregnancy as well, like ultrasound. Um, yep. imaging okay. of the fetus as yep. it's growing and being able to non-invasively identify if there's any kind of genetic defects yep. that um, result in a physical feature change to that embryo uh, to that fetus so yeah there's we see a whole range of different areas it's it's almost limitless yeah the number of applications that you can apply in the medical space it's fa- it's fascinating and what's been the great um uh, enabler for this is it cloud computing is it uh, an acceptance by the medical profession who are quite conservative yeah no it's definitely not acceptance by the medical professional <laughs> professionals because i think this has been forced on them it's not been a willingness to yes. um, adopt um, i think they are however a lot more culturally a lot less culturally averse to it now but what is basically availability of large amounts of data and, and cloud computing. Cost of cloud computing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when we first started our, when we started our first company and Dom was doing all this um, AI in the military, the reason it was only applied in the military is because they, they had a big supercomputer. Yeah. Right? So it wasn't commonplace or mainstream to have cloud computing on demand. No cheap like we have now yeah so it's just opened up this whole global landscape for technologies that can truly scale anywhere yeah it's amazing aws has really it's amazing made uh, the power of computing um and what it will do to accelerate human uh, applications from health to you know military to Transportation is just staggering. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people talk about, you know, Steve Jobs being one of the people that was one of the great enablers. You'd have to say that uh, Amazon and Jeff Bezos oh. is just... Yeah. I know it's a, it's not bad for a book company. No. Amazing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to dwell on that medical professional bit, mm. um, you know, conservative, slow-moving, sceptical reluctant to sort of you know buy into this kind of uh, technological science um so what was that pushback like and how, how do you break through that yeah uh we i've 
I have to admit we haven't had a huge amount of pushback. So on the and the reason is because our technology has been built with clinics. We have a very clinic-centric model yep. when we build anything. We do not build anything without having clinical partners in place yep. that become the um, expertise and knowledge base of the problem or application area that you are solving for. Yeah. They also are the custodians of the data that you need to build the thing. They then provide the testing facility yes. to actually do the clinical testing. Okay. And then they become the customer because they're the ones that see the patients. So I am always very confused when AI companies working in the medical space do not have a clinic-centric view. Yeah. So because they are literally part of the entire process in our company and what that means is that they're um, – they're contributing all their knowledge. You're orienting your product to something that you already know is a pain point for them. They understand through the course of development of the product how it's developed so they have a level of trust around it. They want to test it. They advocate for it. And then what we actually do is we pay them royalties on the commercial yeah, right. value of yeah. the actual product at the end. So not only are they kind of contributors, but they're beneficiaries. And I, I just think it's fair, yeah. right, because everyone expects – data providers just to provide data so that they can do their thing but why or they just take it without asking i know why would they not i mean they should get value from that data it's their data and i just think that's the fair way to do it that's an interesting point is it their data is a patient giving consent uh, all the way along yeah i mean the patient gives consent so they're um, definitely giving informed consent to the clinical providers before we do anything with that data um, and, you know, people will argue that the patient should derive the value from that data, but they are deriving the value from that data by virtue of technologies that are going to improve healthcare outcomes for them. I see right? a parallel between organ donation and this kind of data donation. Yep. You know, you're helping someone down the track. You're, Correct. You're, your opportunity may have passed, but, it, again, the greater good. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I think that's fascinating. Um, so what you've done is, you know, cutting edge, bleeding edge, how have you attracted capital? How have you attracted backers? And how has that accelerated the, the business and the opportunity you see? Yeah, we've, we've again, been quite fortunate. I think you need to be very careful if you're going to tackle something in the AI and medical space that you've got enough, enough capital to survive long enough to get something yes. through to market because <laughs> yeah. it's very expensive, heavy compliance and regulatory Yeah environment uh very difficult in terms of clinical testing and um just a very expensive business to run very up high upfront capital intensive but we had we were fortunate that we had an exit and so we had some funding that we could put to it ourselves to at least get the early proof point the technical feasibility if you like yes yes this is possible to solve this problem yep And I think that made it a lot easier to raise our first round of funding. So we raised a seed round in February last year through a a group of high net wealth in um, Melbourne. Yep. And we had a lot of support in terms of funding from the South Australian government as well, which was amazing for us. And that's just made all the difference. So those that investor group has been instrumental in not only helping us grow the business. Yeah but providing, you know, providing the input that we needed to grow the business um, for that last year. And now we're embarking on a big Series A, which is um, going to help us to grow globally. And you're going to go globally for that journey? 
Yes, yes. Yeah. So I think it's important for us to take some strategic US-based funding at Absolutely. this point yeah. um, so that we can, you know, set ourselves up for series B, C, D, whatever the future may hold, um, and also to get that kind of global network, you know, in which we're going to scale into. But we've, again, got support from our current investor group and we've got a lot more support from other investors in Australia who I think now have seen our journey for the last three years and really see the massive opportunity that we've got. Yeah, look, and I think it's a sophisticated kind of investment proposition because people aren't going to get an immediate return from something like this. It's, as you say, capital intensive up front, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, it's got a long gestation period before... Uh, the technology is rolled out at scale and uh, a lot of Australian investors are wanting a two to four year time horizon for a return. Yeah. This is probably a little bit longer than that, I'm guessing. It is, but we're starting, we're at that tipping point now. So now we're generating revenue. We're approved in multiple countries. Fantastic. Um, we're selling into clinics. We're impacting the lives of patients. The feedback is incredible. Um, and we're, you know, I feel like we're really on that growth you know, that growth stage now and what we need to do now is get capital to build kind of a distributed sales and technical support network around the world. That's and, that's and what we need. You've been travelling to all these places to do deals? and um, It's really interesting. So what we found, yes, we travel extensively, but what we found is that the technology is so simple. <laughs> it wasn't simple to build. But the end point of the technology, the application itself yeah. is so simple and, and it's so well oriented yeah. to the current clinical process that we've converted clinics over the phone um, in one or two one or two phone calls. Yeah. And we have them we can set them up a trial on our system within about ten minutes. They can log in, they can access the user guide. Brilliant. You know, accept the agreements and they can drag and drop embryo images. And it's literally every embryo set of embryos takes about 15 to 30 seconds to analyze. It's just very intuitive. So it's actually a really scalable model That's that brilliant. we've developed. And yeah. the results are, I've read, are, you know, 30% more accurate than a human. Yep. And at that cost, and, you know, when uh, people going through, I know, I know a lot of friends have gone through IVF. Um, it's hard slog, it's stressful, all of these things, anything that can improve that journey for people and give them uh, more hope that it's going to work, I think it's amazing. Yeah, so, correct. We're just trying to reduce the time and the number of cycles that anyone needs to endure yeah. to take home a baby. We can't, can't make better in. embryos, but we can help them pick the best one first time. And if, you've, if you know anyone who's gone through that process, it is terrible. Yeah. It breaks up families. Yeah. It breaks up marriages. Yeah. It's a really an ordeal for these patients. Yeah. The stimulations of hormones that they need to go through, the preparation and then the expectation of a successful outcome and then not going home with a baby is just it's something that you can't understand it's unless you... Yeah, it's yeah. heartbreaking for yeah. them. So anything that can reduce that time... Um, and the amount of cycles they need to endure is is a really big deal. So can people look for then clinics that have yep. Life Whisperer uh, endorsement or they can. affiliation? They can. And the lovely thing is that we're having patients go to their clinics and say, I'm not going to go there unless you're using Life Whisperer. And it's so easy. The barrier to uptake for a clinic is so low. We don't charge the clinics. We charge a very 
um, low cost to each patient as part of their IVF treatment, um, which the patient's more than happy to pay because it's a very low cost and it potentially saves them thousands of dollars from having to do a repeat cycle and the clinics pay nothing. Yep. So it's really, it's a very good business model for the, you know, it's very easy for us to set clinics up. And, I think they call yeah. it a no-brainer, don't they? Yeah, well, <laughs> you'd think that. I mean, obviously it's not as easy in practice as, as that, but um, as we're getting more use cases in market, I think it's becoming more easy and people are now seeking it out and really interested in, you know, in giving it a try. And if I can get them to give it a try, I know that they'll continue with it because oh, it's just really informative for them. Yeah, great. Uh, what about uh, some pinch myself moments? Have you gone, this is unbelievable what I've actually uh, been able to create here or help people's lives? It must be sometimes you must get uh, almost emotional when you're dealing in yeah. these spaces. Um, what's been one of the things that have stood out for you? I think um, the first time one of the clinics said, we've just had a life whisperer baby. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. and they were like, we've, you know, they were kind of waiting on tender hooks and they let me know that, you know, I think someone's, you know, someone's pregnant, you know, in our first, first use of life whisperer. And yeah. it's just, that's kind of the end point for us, right? It's all of the other stuff is great. And of course, you know, we were talking before the podcast in order for scientific advances to be useful to patients, you need to build up a successful commercial business, right? But you need to have the right intention about why you're doing the thing. Yes. And I think we just all care deeply about that patient outcome and that's what we're driven for and that's why we have a clinic-centric approach and that's why we try and come up with scalable solutions so that they can be low-cost for patients. That's what we care about. Yes. Right? So the first time that you have the technology actually impacting positively a patient outcome, that's yeah. pretty special. Yeah. No, look, I've done a lot of podcasts, um, Michelle, where I've felt uh, very unimportant with the things I've done in business. Yeah. You know, having a little counter on my website saying dollars. So yeah. <laughs> and you're saying humans bought, yeah. you know. Um. Sorry, I mean. <laughs> No, not at all. So I've been through a lot of the things where, uh, you know, you've had success. What about the other side of it where you've gone, gee, this is really hard. What am I doing here? It's, I don't don't know if I can push on or um, any moments where you really doubted yourself. Oh, all the time. Yeah. All the time. Everyone has those moments, right? I mean, I think the way that I, the way that I overcome those moments is set really targeted timeframes and expectations around what I think should happen in those timeframes so that you can track whether things are going in the right direction or not. Because I think what people do sometimes, and I've done this in the past, particularly with my first company, you just you just keep doing yeah. and doing and then all of a sudden you end up at a point and you're like, how did I get here? That's not at all where I intended to be <laughs> or, you know, or where I intended the business to be. And I think if you just kind of do shorter term measurements and then kind of check in and say, all right, is everything tracking how I thought it would be? Yes. All right. Then, you know, stay the course yeah. or no, what do we need to do? Yes. And that happens all the time. It's a constant process yeah. in business. And I think it's just, you just need to have your eyes wide open all the time and just make sure that you're, you're tracking to what you what your expectations are. And what about the, uh, you know, you brought on some uh, high net worth investors, so you've then got other people's money, massive expectations, outcomes you're driving towards. Um, 
you say you're doing those incremental measurements, but huge amounts of pressure you, mm. you've no doubt put on yourself and your your husband. Um, how do you deal with that? Or you just that was a, it was really interesting before we raised our first round because our previous company we had a services business that funded the product development and then we sold the business yeah. after eight years. So we didn't raise capital. Very different. Very different having that expectation and that onus of, you know, leveraging someone else's money. I did not feel good about that at all. I would have preferred to not have to do that just because inherently that's not my, you know, I don't I don't like having that um, that feeling of potentially letting someone down that's put their money in and backed us. But... You know, again, I think you just need to be very pragmatic about what you need and you need investment to grow something of significant scale. And I think if you're diligent and if you're careful and if you do your absolute best to maintain the credibility and push the business forward, it's actually all you can do. Yes. Right. So there's external things, contextual environmental things that can impact a business no matter how well you're doing or no matter how much you try and you just can't control for everything and I think the really important thing for us was to align with the investors and we found this very difficult to find the right type of investor but to align with investors who understood our big vision who cared about the big vision because the last thing you want is a misalignment of vision and who understood the nature of the healthcare sector I think that's really important because you don't want someone that thinks they're going to make a quick, you know, return on a healthcare business because it just requires a long lay time and, you know, a lot of investment in time and technology development and clinical testing before you kind of get to that scale phase. And our investors have been really, um, a really positive influence on our business. So we're very fortunate. You are fortunate. I think also with... You know, I personally think with taking people's money, uh, having the right motivations going into a business, mm. the positive, but fear is a great motivator as well. It is. So on the days where things aren't going well and you think, oh, well, maybe we're not going to get there, oh, but I've got a responsibility because I've got, you know, money from other people, um, that can sometimes be a good prod as well. I think people always told me, don't be too honest to investors. I totally disagree with that yeah, approach. I, I think disagree. it's a terrible approach. And I think actually that's what adds to the stress of entrepreneurs and CEOs. Yeah. Because I think if you can't be honest with your investors, then they're not the right investors and they don't have your best interests. Because only when you're kind of honest and share those challenges are you ever going to get feedback as to what to do right and they're there because they've had experience and because they've gone through some of those things they've invested in other companies who have failed or who have succeeded wildly and they know what that looks like yeah and so if you can't ask them for help i think you've got the wrong investor group so we've always been really honest with our investors and i think they appreciate that and there's a lot of kind of goodwill through those relationships that you develop yeah, it's a good lesson, I think, for entrepreneurs as well, that any investor who thinks that the path you've charted is exactly how things are going to turn out is lost the plot. And by yeah. having uh, ongoing, honest conversations and say, actually, we need to pivot or we mm. need to do this, an investor should go, oh, that's great you're pivoting. Um, you know, that's a normal process for a business to go through. Correct. Yeah. Um, and investors that don't get that, they're, as I say, unsophisticated and probably if you've got into bed with them, then 
bad luck, but yeah. try, not to, <laughs> try not to get into bed yeah. with them in the first place. Correct, correct. Um, so what's the end game here? What, where, where do you see it going? Where do you want it to go? Yeah, I, wanna, I, I really want to develop and demonstrate the global scale that I know we can achieve, not just with product one, but with the broader capability that we've developed. We think we can impact healthcare globally yep. with what we've developed. And, you know, it's interesting in Australia because people are very, you know, we were talking about tall poppy syndrome before, and it's actually a real thing. Um, everyone's always kind of told me not to be too ambitious and, you know, don't set your sights too far in the future and make sure that you're just focused on that yep. one thing. I think if you don't have that broader vision, you'll never get there. And I think you really need to believe it. You yep. need to believe that you can have that impact. And we've got world-class technology that I know doesn't exist anywhere in the world. Yeah. And I want to leverage it. I want to I want to show the world that we can create this, you know, despite being here. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's just a really exciting time for some really sophisticated technology that we've developed. And I think... As I kind of travel and speak in different places in the world, what I always notice is that what we're developing here is so world-class, but you wouldn't know it if you were just here, which is why I think it's really important to kind of get out there and get that external feedback and understand kind of where you're placed in the global landscape so that it gives you the confidence then to forge forward and, you know, and do something on a really big scale. Yeah, well, I think the fact you're doing it here in little old Adelaide, um, you know, you've got a lot of factors working for you, being close to the university. Um, You're able to tap into the world networks when you need to, but you don't have to be uh, aligned to any particular ecosystem. I actually think probably works in your favour. It's a massive hidden advantage. Yeah. People don't realise. People assume it's a disadvantage. It's not. If you had to hire the skills, investors in the US are astounded with the amount of technology that we have developed and with the global product that we've got through regulatory approvals in three years with up until February of last year, four people. Right, it's unbelievable. These are global clinical trials, right? <laughs> and now we've got 18 people, which is fabulous. But in the US, if you were to do that, you would need 50, 70 million dollars, yeah. yeah. right, yeah. of early stage funding. So we've got a huge advantage in Australia. We've got very strong technical talent. And particularly in South Australia, actually, we've got very strong medical and AI capability. So it's a really, it's kind of the perfect location for the research base of a company yeah. like ours. You yeah. might you might get very surprised one day that this podcast never sees the light of day, and I end up setting up next door with a whole bunch of AI people. <laughs> no Don't one else will know about it. All right, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna finish on the the quick fire round. Oh god, it's the. Uh, I'm the, not good at these. There's a little bit of levity at the end, and I've changed it up for 2020. So right. I've gone from favourite comedian to. What invention uh, do you hope to see in your lifetime? Oh, what invention? Oh, flying cars are pretty cool, definitely. They're coming, they're coming. Um, What's a lesson learned the hard way? Pick your partners wisely. (laughs) In life or business? Business, business (laughs) partners. Pick your business partners wisely. What book should every company builder read? Oh, this is more a personal one for me. So how to stop worrying and start living. Um, What's the best interview question in your toolbox? 
best interview request. Oh, this is a good one. It's a really simple one that people never prepare for. What do you know about our company? You would not believe the responses I've had to this. I'm glad you didn't ask me that. <laughs> um, what question are you asked more than any other? Can you help me too? <laughs> what advice should first-time founders heed? Ah, uh, build your networks. Build your networks. Yes. Leverage networks. Networks are everything. It's a great piece of advice, Michelle. Amazing journey. Amazing story. Thank you for your time. I know you're very busy. Um, appreciate it. Good luck, and thank you for being on Discipline. Yeah. No. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it.